Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. We appreciate you being with us. It seems we've got those old Mar-a-Lago blues again. Donald Trump supporters can't figure out who to badmouth these days as a redacted version of the affidavit in support of the Mar-a-Lago raid has been made public. President Biden cancels student loan debt for a huge number of Americans. Some of the people who had their own loans forgiven aren't happy about this. Democrats are express expressing guarded optimism about the upcoming midterm elections. Are they justified or are they delusional? California plans to ban the sale of gasoline cars by 2035. And did you hear the one about the partying prime minister? No, it's not Boris Johnson. Let's begin, shall we? Start with the Mar-a-Lago raid. Redacted remix version. The Justice Department let it drop at the end of last week as directed by a judge. And what was the rationale for the raid? The FBI found the following, and this was before they paid their early morning visit. 184 unique documents bearing classification markings, including 67 documents marked as confidential, 92 documents marked as secret, and 25 documents marked as top secret. As we mentioned last episode, the raid came after months of back and forth with Trump's people over what they would give up. That is a lot of stuff. As I'm sure most of you know, Trump has used the rationale that as president, he could declassify anything he wanted. And that's true. Yet the boxes the FBI took were marked as classified, secret, or top secret. One would think if they were declassified, the boxes would be marked that way. No matter, since I'm not sure that Trump is still even using that as a defense anymore. Then there's the question of obstruction. The affidavit says the former guy and his allies were running interference against the National Archives when they tried more than once to get the documents back. Although a good deal of the document was redacted, there's a clear inference that the archives have been trying to pry them loose for at least the last six months of 2021 going into this year. The Trumpian response that, quote, it's mine, not theirs, end quote, doesn't look like it's going to work. Neither will the line about cooperating with the archives and giving them everything they asked for. That could be part of a comedy sketch, the way this is going. By the way, Trump has begun trumpeting his responses on his Truth Social Twitter clone. Published reports say that's not going so well for him either, with a couple of firms complaining of being stiffed on payments. Where have we heard that one before? Behind the name of Donald Trump. But that's another story for another day. Now, you may be wondering why Trump and some of his allies pressed to have the affidavit released in the first place. As we've said before, the answer is simple. He wanted to find out who was leaking information to law enforcement, who in his inner circle is leaking information to law enforcement. He's no closer to getting actual names, but it's clear somebody was singing like Pavarotti to the FBI. One thing the redacted affidavit doesn't tell us is why Trump took so much material with him when he left the White House in the first place. We also don't know if the document lays out a proper case for criminal charges to be filed against the former guy. Again, last episode we pointed out 
then an affidavit is usually sealed until charges are made and in fact filed. It was media pressure, one assumes, that caused Judge Bruce Reinhardt to unseal the documents. So now that we know what concerns law enforcement had that provoked the raid, now what? Funny that a good number of Trump allies have muted their criticisms of the FBI, the Department of Justice, and Attorney General Merrick Garland now that the facts of the affidavit have been made public. Don't worry, they'll think of a new line of attack. They always do, and they usually take their cue from guess who. And what are we to make of the information that, according to the New York Times, there was a, quote, trove of highly classified material that included documents related to the use of clandestine human sources in intelligence gathering. In plain English, this has to do with people in the intelligence community and the people that they rely on for information. If this is true and Trump actually declassified them, you have to ask yourself, why? And just as important, if all this chaos over documents is for real, what does it say about the four years that Donald Trump actually spent as president? Just asking. Up next, President, the current president, Joe Biden, cancels a load of student loan debt. Why'd he do it? And why is there so much pushback? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page, or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Welcome back to The Intersection. Judging from the reaction in some quarters, you'd think President Joe Biden had unilaterally declared war on Russia. It was instead the decision to cancel a significant amount of student debt for tens of millions of Americans. Americans, that is. This did not come easily to Biden, given his moderate instincts, because many people believe his moderate instincts are what got him elected president in the first place. He knew that the fire would come from many on the right and even from some in his own party. It would only help the already privileged, they said. It would cost too much, they said. It would be a slap in the face to those who actually paid their debt off. The fiercest advocates for debt forgiveness fired back. They equated the cancellation to the 2017 Republican tax cuts, which totaled almost $2 trillion. That's trillion with a T. Biden used that one in response to a question about whether the plan was fair to those who had already paid off their loans. And make no mistake, there were people around him, like Senator Chuck Schumer, who wanted the debt cancellation to be set at $50,000 instead of the ten dollars and $20,000 that was actually eventually done. This back and forth explains why there was so little action on debt relief for so long. As is usually the case, some of the most vocal opponents of the initiative were the beneficiaries of loan forgiveness themselves. Let's look at the list. Marjorie Taylor Greene had $183,000 and change in PPP, Paycheck Protection 
That's what she got. $183,000 for given loans. Congressman Vern Buchanan, $2.3 million, and he calls himself a blue-collar kid. Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen, $1.4 million. Congressman Kevin Hearn, over a million. Mike Kelly, I'm sorry, $987,000. And, get this, Matt Gates, $482,000 and change. The list goes on and on. The sad efforts on the part of some to argue that the Paycheck Protection Program money isn't the same as going to college is utterly and completely hypocritical. The fact is, Biden's program is moderate, especially by his standards. As is the case in many situations, politics played a role in the result. Yes, the Democrats are hoping young people will be energized and come out this November. The GOP, on the other hand, thinks older Americans will also be galvanized to come out and vote against Democrats. I'm not at all sure that debt cancellation alone will be the deciding factor for either side. We'll have to wait and see on that. But I do want to tell a very brief story here. Because for me, and again, this is anecdotal, but for me, it's unique. I know a guy, was very friendly with a guy, who about... God, 15, maybe 20 years ago, attended college after graduating high school. He took out absolutely no student loans, and he paid his tuition as he went. Worked really, really hard. Worked two jobs in a couple of cases, but graduated, and this is hard to believe, in four years with a degree, Bachelor of Science. And I've always greatly admired this man for his ability to juggle all that education and the responsibility. He doesn't have to pay back any student loans. Now, granted, he went to a public college, but the bottom line is he worked his behind off. And my guess is he's not pleased at Joe Biden's program to forgive loan debt. But I think people ought to see, particularly a college education, as an investment, an investment in the nation's future. And if there are people who can now, and again, this happened 20 years ago with my friend, if there are people who can now actually do college without taking a student loan and paying as they go, semester after semester, God love them all. I don't think there are that many because even in the last 20 years, College tuition has skyrocketed. And I mean skyrocketed like crazy. And again, we'll have to wait and see what impact this has politically. But for tens of millions of Americans who were saddled with serious college loan debt, it's a lifeline. It won't eliminate it, but it will definitely help. Does lead, however, to the question of whether the tide has turned in fact, for Democrats regarding the midterm elections. Not that long ago, every poll, every media outlet were predicting doom for the Democrats this November. Now, not so much. Strong showings in special elections in Nebraska, upstate New York, and Minnesota are giving Democrats renewed hope. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, God, I really hate to say that, the abortion decision may play a role 
But the economic headwinds that have buffeted Democrat incumbents and insurgents alike seem to be headed in a different, more positive direction. Inflation slowing, gas prices dropping, while unemployment remains low, and I mean at historic lows. Those are all big pluses. And of course, the Trump saga allows Democrats to take the focus off Biden and shift it to potential law-breaking on the part of the former guy. Will it be enough? We obviously do not know yet. Fact is, winning the House isn't that tall in order for the GOP. Five seats will flip it to the Republicans. Part of this is down to redistricting. Some congressional districts that are currently represented by Democrats may find under new lines their districts skew Republican. In a lot of cases, turnout will make all the difference. In some states, energizing the Democratic base has been difficult. You know, with inflation, gas prices, it's hard to marshal support for the Democrats who are, in fact, by a narrow margin, the party in power. They control both houses and the White House. Nonetheless, there are candidates that are working hard, and of course, and vote, getting out the vote efforts are crucial. And as one who has done get out the vote efforts, it's not the easiest task in the world. There are problems with skepticism on the part of people who are potential voters. Young people have to be marshaled. You know, there's a, a good number of people over the last two years who have become eligible to vote in states and municipalities across the country. The Democrats are going to have to get to them and make a cogent case for them coming out to vote and coming out to vote for Democratic Party candidates. Tall order. We'll see if they can pull it off. Two stories round out our episode. One is about a partying prime minister who's not named Boris, and California is the first state to get rid of gas-powered vehicles. Not tomorrow, but in 2035. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Most people in the world see presidents and prime ministers as older, predominantly male, usually in suits and ties, trying to steer their governments in whatever direction their party dictates. Enter Sana Marin, prime minister of Finland. She's 36 years old. She wears leather jackets and apparently likes to enjoy herself. In short, to party. Her list of accomplishments is the equal of any European head of state. Yet they're being overshadowed by a controversial set of videos that were leaked to the media. One shows her at a boisterous party with friends and has become a symbol of the emerging power of the relatively young and the female. The videos alone have caused some in Finland to call for her resignation. One featured two women kissing and exposing themselves in the press room of the Prime Minister's official residence. Neither was the Prime Minister herself, but the Finnish media picked it up and ran with it. 
She's been accused of taking drugs, then took a test and passed it. In a way, Sana Marin's situation is emblematic of the divide between generations. Somehow, for whatever reasons, older folks get nervous when they see younger people in politics expressing themselves in ways they're not used to. Even her critics acknowledge that she's navigated the COVID pandemic better than most European countries. She's also responded to the Russian invasion of Ukraine by steering her country's bid to join NATO, along with Sweden. There is, and I've said this before and I'm going to say it again, there's no such thing as a perfect politician. But at least Sana Marin did not violate her own lockdown rules as one prime minister in Europe, in fact, did. Now, as an old man myself, I saw some of this generational divide stuff coming many, many years ago. When I was a young guy, I used to sit up and think to myself, I'm part of the baby boom generation. And baby boomers as youngsters were beyond boisterous. Remember Woodstock and many other, Altamont, all these other things that were about that generation's freedom to express themselves. Our generation's freedom to express ourselves. I also knew that the reason for calling it the baby boom generation was because it is a huge cohort, still is a huge cohort of the different age uh, demographics that people tend to use to divide Americans. The baby boom generation, first of all, was a very long period of time. For most, 1946 through 1964. More people were born and came of age during that time. And I understand that. And even in my 20s, I started asking myself, what happens when my generation gets old? What happens when the people who are part of the baby boom generation suddenly are in power and suddenly have to deal with holding on to that power against a push from younger generations? And we've got a few of them now. I'm not going to recount them here. I forget half of them. But those of us who are in the baby boom generation have been holding on to power with the tenacity of a pit bull that doesn't want to let go of a chew toy. Put simply, Sana Marin tells us it's past time for us to let go. California has historically been a state that makes change, both positive and negative, before the rest of the country. The state has now begun the process of mandating the elimination of the sale of new gas-powered vehicles by 2035. Talk about ambitious. If this move is cleared by the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, it could signal several other states to adopt similar regulations. What ends up happening is what goes on in California, what laws are changed in California, other states almost reflexively, especially environmental laws, they follow California's lead. The reaction from the automobile industry has been less resistant than some, than some might expect. However, some 17 states, some as far away from California as West Virginia, have filed suit to stop the new regulation. Not surprisingly, the states are led by Republicans. Their reasons for opposing California on this aren't really worth mentioning here. 
But suffice to say, they're on the wrong side of history. Too bad they don't seem to know. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.